Hi, welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. My name is Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And we are on episode eight. We also have some guests with us today. Uh, we have Kyle Patton and Paul Maxwell, both whom are students at Westminster Theological Seminary. Kyle Patton is a Biblical Studies THM student, and Paul Maxwell is a Systematic Theology PhD student. Welcome, Kyle. It's good to be here. And welcome, Paul. It's great to be here as well. Awesome. So this episode, we are discussing the apostolic fathers. Yeah. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why we are on the episode of Apostolic Fathers as far as the transition that we are making throughout all the different programs. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while since we haven't... We've had an episode, so uh, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> bring it up to speed. Uh, Apostolic Fathers itself is kind of a misnomer uh, of, of terms because we're actually not even talking about the apostles. It's uh, um, kind of a, a later anachronistic term. The term's first used in the 6th century um, by Severus of Antioch, not to be confused with Severus Snape of Hogwarts, um, but he uh, Severus of Antioch <laughs> uh, is the first to use the term Apostolic Fathers, and it's the, the time period... R- Roughly referring to about the year seventy to one thirty-five, with you know the onset or kind of in the middle of the uh, the Jewish War, leading up to uh, um, the bar the, the the end of the Bar Kokhba Revolt in one thirty-five. What what's going on with that first generation of Christians after the passing off of the apostles? Um, and so again, we're not yeah the Apostolic Fathers refers to that first generation following that of the uh, Apostolic period. Okay, so. Uh- Name for us some of the key figures, some of the the, the actual fathers. Who are we talking about here? Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting because the term since the 17th century um, has come to refer to a collection of texts that we have. We don't have a lot of texts, but we do have some uh, written by uh, various individuals within the, the church during that, that time period, and it's a various assortment of texts. Uh, we have some... Uh, uh, didactic teachings, uh, some personal letters, a couple martyrdom accounts, um, a quasi-liturgical piece of literature, the, the Didache, uh, and then um, an apocalyptic piece of literature, too, as well. Um, uh, typically, if you go to the bookstore or Amazon and you find a collection of uh, the Apostolic Fathers, you'll, you're, you'll typically find um, the uh, uh, Clement of Rome, uh, the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, uh, the martyrdom accounts of uh, uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, um, Ignatius and Polycarp are both allegedly uh, disciples of the Apostle John, so it's kind of important uh, that their uh, their insights to what constitutes Christianity and, and how the church should be run should, should give us pause for thought because they themselves uh, at least heard the teachings of the apostles themselves. Um, there's the Didache, which is kind of a, uh, like I said, a quasi-liturgical piece of instruction to give you uh, insights on what baptism looks like in the early church, uh, the celebration of the Eucharist. Uh, things of that sort, and then you have, like I said, a couple apocalyptic pieces of literature, like the Shepherd of Hermas. So it's kind of a uh, a varied assortment of a, a cornucopia of um, mm, that's mm. a academic mm. term, yeah, mm. delightful of of, of various uh, pieces of, of work. So there's no real strict um, rhyme or reason. They're just a collection of texts that we have from the early second century that reflect some of the uh, major issues going on in the church in the early second century. So what is important about um, this era, the, the Apostolic Fathers, that is important to understand, you know, who we are today as far as our, our trek that we're, we're making through church history? We talked a little bit about the heresies mm-hmm. um, and some of the wars that were happening to understand these heresies. Uh, 
what is crucial to nail down for the apostolic fathers? Yeah, well, really, the, the apostolic period, we, we've, we've touched on a couple of these issues uh, in individual episodes, but if you read through the Apostolic Fathers collection, a really good collection is that by, is it Michael Holmes, Kyle? Is that the one who does that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he has a, a good collected edition um, that has also the Greek text. Um, so if you can read, read, read along with that, if you can't, there's also the English text, so that is pretty helpful. Um, but what you see is that there's kind of a large intersection of major things going on that the church has to face. It's kind of a multi-front uh, problem. Uh, first off, like I said, there, there's the uh, uh, problem of Rome. Uh, like I said, um, not just the fact of persecution. We'll consider, you know, we've talked about that martyr himself, but there's just coming from the, the Roman public opinion, just their understanding of Christianity is kind of seen not through um, Christianity as it really is, but through popular opinion, you know, um, things that people are saying on the street. Uh, Christianity is typically accused of three things in the early second century that of uh, uh, cannibalism, uh, incest, and atheism. Uh, cannibalism because of the language that they use with respect to partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, incest because of the language of referring to everyone as brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, the language of love, things like that. Uh, they'll be accused of uh, orgies, things of that sort. And then also uh, they're accused of atheism because they deny the uh, the Roman pantheon, which of course has uh, political ramifications in a, an empire that's so concerned with civic stability. Um Denying the gods, the source of that stability, uh, leads to a series of problems. It kind of puts them in the crosshairs of the empire. Um, that's one thing. There's the, the problem of uh, Judaizers. Um, or we, we've talked a little bit uh, in previous episodes um, about the emerging split between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, even uh, at the time of Ignatius's letters, uh, as he's about to be martyred, we'll talk about him in a few minutes. Um, he has to write to a couple churches telling them that um, um, that is absolutely absurd um, to both profess Jesus and practice Judaism. Apparently, there's still people wanting to practice both. Um, uh, he says you can't do that. Um, uh, kind of carrying on the stuff that we saw in, let's say, Acts 15 and, and things of that sort. Um, you've got the problems of false prophets, false teachers. Um, docetism is alive and well. That was, I think, what we did our last episode on. Um, docetism is alive and well, at least in three major cities, Ephesus, uh, Trallus, and Smyrna. Or, I'm not Smyrna, uh, Smyrna. Um, and uh, Ignatius, on his way to be martyred, takes the time to write three letters um, opposing docetism, uh, giving the reasons, which we spelled out in last episode, why we should re- reject uh, the ascetic heresy that maintained that Jesus only appeared to be uh, human, uh, only appeared to take on human flesh. Um, and then you also have the, the idea that there's the problem that the, the apostles have died off, and it, it leaves all these various issues kind of um, consolidates on the single point of where does the church's authority lie? Um, yeah, uh, Kyle, it looks like you have something to say. Yes. Uh, I was just going to ask about, uh, what are, what, you know, with the dying off the apostles, what, what is kind of the structure of the church look like in, in particular, what would someone like Ignatius, how would he construct the authority within the church? Right. Yeah, no, that, that's good. It's real helpful. And that, that's actually the kind of the key point that people, one of the two or three major issues that people focus on when they read, look at Ignatius. Calvin, for instance, hated Ignatius because of his stance on uh, uh, on the uh, uh, where, where the authority of the church lies. Uh, he had severe problems with it. I think he might have even said that this couldn't have been Ignatius, or if it was he, he just rejects it flat out. But, I mean, if you think about it, even if you read, let's say, the pastoral epistles in the New Testament, um, Paul is 
going through great pains to ensure that the passing off the mantle of leadership onto elders in local congregations to ensure that each church has its own set of elders that run and regulate things. Um, and there's a, a variety of synonyms used for the elders, um, presbyteros. There's also episcopos or bishop. They seem to be somewhat synonymous in the New Testament. Um, by the late first, early second century, it seems to be that there's about two competing strands of uh, church authority. Um, and with all these kind of issues converging on, on uh, churches, particularly major urban cultural centers, Antioch, for instance, Rome, uh, Corinth, um, I believe Clement of Rome, if I recall correctly, that letter deals with the problem of uh, um, uh, members in the congregation wanting to kind of overthrow the authority of the bishop. And, and all these people claiming to be false, you know, or not, they're not claiming to be false prophets, but false teachers, false prophets. Um, yeah, the, the question of authority com, comes into play. And of course, Ignatius will clearly recognize a key distinction between his own writings and the writings of the apostles. So he doesn't put his authority on par with the apostles. You can see this in his letter to the Trallians, uh, I think it's chapter 3. Um, he does make a clear distinction. Polycarp of Smyrna, another uh, bishop, will make that distinction. At the same time, um, even though all the New Testament books have been written by this point in time, there is still the problem of circulation. You, you know, there aren't printing presses. The fact that these have to be copied by hand and sent to every individual church takes a process. So for the, uh, you know, Michael Kruger's book deals with this in the reception of the New Testament canon. The fact that a, a collated, kind of a collected edition of a, of a bound New Testament, as we have it today, isn't there yet. And so for Ignatius, the problem seems to be a pragmatic issue to solve. Where does the church authority lie? Well, for him, it's pretty clear and simple. It, it resides with the bishop. It makes sense for him because both he and Polycarp, who were kind of leading bishops in kind of the church community, sat under the Apostle John's teaching. They've been bishops for years. So it only makes sense that, of course, you know, you know, this isn't imposing anachronistically kind of – we don't want to read the Council of Trent into this when we're talking about apostolic succession over the course of 16 centuries. For them, it's, oh, yeah, the bishop you know, knows it because we were trained by the apostles. Um, and so he really wants to um, crack down on this issue of authority. I mean, again, it, to me, it seems to be a practical issue when you don't have um, a, a fully solidified canon. Again, the books have been received. The, the New Testament is in itself a th fully authoritative. I'm not denying that by any stretch of the imagination. But practically speaking, as the, the, the canon is making its way throughout the churches in, in both the eastern and western part of the empire um, – and with the problems of false prophets, people claiming to be true apostles, I mean, you even saw that in Paul's day, um, uh, for um, Ignatius, it really seems to center around the fact that the bishop should be the place where um, the authority resides. Um, this is kind of seen in and plays itself out in the um, celebration of the Lord's Supper, for instance. Um, um, the bishop was usually seen as to be the representative of all the presbyters in a given city. Is, is how it, it appears, according to Henry Chadwick, um, it appears that this is kind of how a bishop was initially seen. It's kind of like the representative elder in a, in a respective city. Um, and Ignatius um, it, it has a problem with some of these Christians and households celebrating the Lord's Supper by themselves. For him, the big threat to Christianity is that of, of church unity. And so for him, unity is going to is, is seen in the fact that the bishop resides over the Lord's Supper, because if the bishop resides over the Lord's Supper, then all the Christians have to show up. They just can't go off by themselves and celebrate the Supper apart from other people. 
The idea is that the supper itself, that church unity is visibly seen, and it's visibly seen in the life of uh, believers who commune with one another in the partaking of the Eucharist. Based on everything that you've said, we can probably imagine how we could overread this and to say that bishops have the authority in and of themselves, right. and not necessarily as representatives, and that the most important part of the bishop's rule resides in the Lord's Supper, the administration of the Lord's Supper. It's unimportant. I don't know if it's the most important. I mean, again, um, yeah, I mean, again, we're only dealing with two or, well, we maybe have a dozen texts that give us insights to what's going on in the early church, and so I don't want to overstate my case. You know, I want to make sure that we're not reading um, the idea of Episcopalian authority through the lens of Trent in the 16th century, but I also don't want to make it seem like they already have the uh, the OPC's Book of Church Order. Um, that glorious thing will not uh, be seen until centuries later. Yeah, it just seems like uh, as if in Ignatius's letter, he says that the authority of the bishop um, and whoever he himself designates um, are the ones who are to give the Eucharist. So mm. it seems as if there's a little bit of authority that goes outside of the bishop, but it, there still has to be a kind of a top down from the bishop to other. Is that would yeah. that be? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that'd be fair. That that you know, um, yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. cool. <laughs> Um, Maybe is is he speaking of uh, the administration of the supper or uh, the administration of the supper outside of the bishop being there? And my understanding is that uh, the, the bishop. Oh, actually, um, yeah, I, I was reading Chadwick, Henry Chadwick on this yesterday. If you read um, from Galilee to Gregory the Great, he spends a whole chapter talking about Ignatius, and um, it's pretty explicit for Ignatius um, that. Um, the bishop has to be present. Presbyters have to be present at the administration of the supper. Um, you just can't take it willy-nilly on your own. Okay. I guess this is probably my own ignorance or maybe not paying attention very well in Dr. Truman's class when I was <laughs> doing my MAR. But um, what would the difference be between Eucharist and love feast? I think that oftentimes we we think about the ancient church yeah. and we consider, oh, love feast, that meant, that was when they broke bread with one another, that must have been the Eucharist. Yeah, um, that's a question I've had. I, I've read a little bit on it. Um, I think in Henry Chadwick's The Early Church book, he talks a little bit about it. Um, my understanding is that there, there's not an awful lot that's known about it. I, I, apparently it was celebrated I, I think in the homes on a regular basis with other people. Um, but uh, Again, from what I've read, it's been a while since I've read it, it, it seems to have died out early on to where if there was a distinction between the Lord's Supper and the and the Love Feast, um, eventually either the Love Feast died out or they kind of coalesced into the same thing. And that I, I'm not sure. Okay, so maybe the best picture is Francis Schaeffer's one from his <laughs> How Then Shall We Live films <laughs> in which there are people in mid-70s haircuts and – Singing CCM songs, singing, singing CCM songs, with, gathering in the catacombs of Rome, and and eating bread and drinking wine together. Yeah, um, to me that that kind of seems to be. I mean, even if you read First Corinthians, uh, when Paul is talking about people getting drunk at the at the Lord's table, I mean, these churches are happening in people's homes. There aren't separate church buildings because you know, Christianity is. I mean definitely by the second, third centuries is outlawed. And so usually uh, churches, you know, 
take place in people's homes. Um, and kind of what you see is, is, uh, some of the, especially at the church at Corinth, uh, the rich people are, are bringing their own food and they're drink and they're getting drunk at the Lord's supper and they're not providing any food or any drink for the poor members of the church. Hmm. And that's really what, what Paul's criticizing pretty hard, uh, in his letter to, to the church at Corinth. Um, and so to keep that in mind that, that, it's very clear for Paul in First Corinthians that the uh, Eucharist or the Lord's Supper communion is the is, is a visible symbol of the church's unity. For Ignatius, th- this is a line of continuity; it stays the same. And how do we ensure that the the, the supper is being taken care of properly and administered properly? Bishop needs to be present. Hmm. Charles, I have a question. In the mid first century, you get the clear picture that the center of church activity in terms of church authority is Judea, and of course, the reaching out to Samaria, Asia Minor, things like that. But Mm -hmm. you also get the clear picture from history, in terms of Clement of Rome, that there's kind of a power shift from that area to to Rome. And of course, history ultimately does play play out that way in, in, yeah. shi- in, a, in a major shift of power. So yeah. what, uh, how do we sort of understand that, that geographical shift? Yeah, uh, that's a real good question. That's something that's going to uh, come into greater play in, in future episodes, because I'm actually I was ho- I'm hoping to build a, a lengthier case with this, because um, uh, it, it's almost an accident of history that Rome takes the, the precedence that it does. Um, by the fourth century, by the time you, you see, if you read through the uh, the canons of uh, the, the Council of uh, Nicaea and Council of Constantinople, um, you can read those online typically for free. Um, there are five major um, administrative centers for the church, especially by the time uh, Christianity becomes the the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 under Theodosius the um, first. Those five major city centers are um, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria. Rome and Constantinople. What's interesting is that four of those cities, four of those five centers, are in the eastern part of the empire. Uh, Rome itself, um, what we see, especially once Constantine comes to power in the fourth century, uh, he relocates the the capital of the empire from Rome and Italy to the Bosphorus, uh, to to the old city of Byzantium. And uh, upon his death in 337, it's uh, renamed in his honor Constantinople. What ends up happening is each administration center, each urban area, what they call a patriarchate, uh, is responsible for overseeing missionary developments and tr- the regulation of church activities and life. Um, and it's a council. Uh, uh, the, the bishops of those five centers, or what they're actually known as the patriarchs of those five urban centers, are supposed to work in uh, conjunction together. It's almost like a Jedi council, mm-hmm. just without lightsabers. Um Mm. And uh, <laughs> mm, yeah, mm. what ends up happening is, is Rome is kind of left to deal with the mission activity activity of everything going on in Europe. We think of Europe as the big bustling cultural hubbub of the uh, you know today. You know, you think Europe, you're automatically thinking Paris or London, Cologne, Berlin, Hamburg, places like that. Back then, it's all backwoods redneck country, and even Rome doesn't have the prestige in the fourth century that it did, that it had in the first century. And so it's in charge of missionary output to the to kind of the Germanic frontier where the, the German barbarian tribes are. A series of events will kind of lead Rome to ascendancy and something that's kind of anticipated in terms of ecclesiastical polity. One of those is the fact that the bishopric of Rome is really successful in its missionary output. 
Um, they're able to convert large numbers of people to Catholic Christianity, um, especially by the fifth, sixth, fifth and sixth century. I mean, they actually convert, uh, at least in name only, uh, uh, the, the uh, chieftain of the Frankish kingdom, Clovis. I think it's in the sixth century. Um, Questions as to whether or not he was actually converted, but Catholicism uh, uh, becomes the official religion of what's modern-day France, uh, the territory of the Franks. And everybody in that territory is kind of under the jurisdiction, the, the pastoral oversight, if you will, of the Bishop of Rome. Um, and, and this is also going on elsewhere. You know, um, Jerusalem's doing the same thing, Antioch, Alexandria, and of course Constantinople. What happens though in the 7th century is that you have the Muslim invasions, Right. They end up basically taking out three three important centers, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem. All that's left are t- which two patriarchates? Rome. Rome. And Constantinople? Yeah, very good. <laughs> Ro- Ro- <laughs> Rome and Constantinople. A. A, that's right. And if you think in terms of historical trajectory, which the emphasis is going to be on historical – we even see this in, with Ignatius, the emphasis on apostolic succession – for historical purposes, to legitimize Orthodox Christianity over and against false versions of Christianity. There's a, 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 a strong emphasis placed on succession in teaching and the physical descendants of that, you know, the passing on of that, 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 that in terms of the, the office-bearing capabilities. Well, which one's going to have a stronger historical tie with Christianity? Rome or Constantinople, which wasn't even built until the 4th century? Rome. Um, I mean, those are just some things that kind of the shift of power. And of course, you know, uh, the Eastern Empire uh, or the Byzantine Empire is going to lose the prestige that it had in the second, third century, especially by the 15th century. I mean, with the onslaught of the Muslim Turks, Constantinople falls in 1453 to the Muslims. Um, as you all know from the They Might Be Giant song, you know, it's no longer Constantinople, it's Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah, Istanbul. And uh, so anyways, that kind of gives us an idea of the trajectory of what's going on in the life of the church, politically speaking, so much so that by um, the 15th century, what's going on with the onset of uh, you know, the events leading up to the Reformation is a debate within that entire territory under the jurisdiction of Rome. That's uh, So it's almost an accident of history. I, I, I use accident loosely since we're at the Presbyterian Seminary, but in terms of secondary causation, it's almost an accident of history that Rome uh, – takes the ascendancy it does there's a there's a host of other factors though but i mean that's kind of a broad thumbnail sketch so during the time of the apostolic fathers there's not as much as you'd say an infatuation with who is the see of rome right as it is well we are the bishops who actually sat under the last living apostle Mm -hmm. john Yeah. yeah and so the shift in power to rome as you said earlier, is an accident in history. It's not an infatuation yeah. within the apostolic fathers. Yeah, you're going to see Clement of Rome, which it might actually be a a, a pseudonym, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But uh, Clement of Rome is actually writing to the church in Corinth, and actually because of the, the the rebellious nature of the congregation at Corinth, and this is probably the late first, early second century, um, because of the rebellious activity that's going on in that church, he actually tells them to submit to the church at Rome. But again, you got to think it's not, we can't read this through the lens of Trent, um, Mm -hmm. 16th century. So you got to read it through the lens of what is, what's the unity of the church look like in the face of all this opposition, both uh, pressure from without, from Rome, from uh, Judaism, and also from within with uh, these uh, emerging various types of heresies that are, that are creeping up on all accounts. How is it that we maintain authority, especially since we, again, we don't have a solidified canon in terms of its reception, 
uh, quite by this point in time. I, I think it's a very pragmatic uh, way in which Ignatius uh, uh, brings out and just has ramifications that play itself out for the next century, you know, several centuries. Uh, I guess uh, maybe a follow-up question to that, so I'm trying to formulate it here, is uh, <clears throat> with the kind of authority then lying with, with the bishop, mm-hmm. going back to that question, how did guys like Ignatius, how do they kind of view threats from the outside versus threats on the inside? And also maybe the what made, I, I guess this kind of gets to the question of martyrdom. Ignatius seems to to want to make sure Rome and the Roman church allows him to be martyred. Mm-hmm. And that, that in some sense will legitimize him as bishop or as a Christian. And yeah. I don't know if you have kind of thoughts on that of what does the role of martyrdom have to do with legitimacy of Christians, and especially in relation to things such as um, uh, heresies in this, within the church or how the church might be viewed from by people from outside the church? Yeah, no, no, that's that's a real good question. One thing to keep in mind, again, if you're, if you're not too familiar with the life of Ignatius, it's okay. There's not a lot of things we know, but Ignatius, um, according to church tradition, um, I think Eusebius writes about it in the 4th century, and, and possibly Clement of Alexander, if I recall, I can't remember, but Ignatius and his friend Polycarp of Smyrna um, were trained, uh, or, or at least grew up listening to the, the preaching of the Apostle John in Ephesus. When we were talking about Ignatius' martyrdom, basically what happens is Ignatius is the bishop of Antioch, um, which is a, a major urban Christian center uh, in Syria. It's actually the first place, again, according to Acts, where Christians get the term Christians uh, you know, named. That's, uh, and so it, it is an important center. Um, he's having, again, to deal with a lot of issues of the, the Judaiz- Judaizing tendencies within uh, Antioch. Again, this is kind of where a lot of Jewish people will live. So you have Jewish converts, and so you still have the problem of people wanting to maintain the Mosaic administration, mandating circumcision, for instance, and, and things of that sort. And um, what, Long story short, it, it's clear that at some point during the Emperor Trajan's reign, Ignatius is martyred. But it's interesting the fact that it seems like he could have gotten away with not being martyred. He really, if you read his letters, basically what ends up happening is he is um, arrested and is going to be escorted to Rome to be martyred. And during his um, kind of transfer from Antioch, you know, this isn't going to, you know, he doesn't have a plane. Uh, it's going to take a while to to travel to Rome to be martyred. He's writing letters to several churches, basically giving his farewell discourse. He writes a letter to his friend Polycarp saying goodbye. Uh, it, it's uh, really moving. He, he writes uh, letters to several churches, the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Trallis. I, I think he writes one to the church at Rome. I can't remember. I, I know there are seven, seven letters that he writes. And, and he's dealing with specific issues that they're facing, and, and some of these issues are, are very, very clearly seen in these letters. It's clear in as he writes to the churches at Smyrna, Trallis, and Ephesus that Docetism has come into full force. Uh, we, we spent, like I said, the last episode talking about Docetism, this early uh, heresy that denies that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. And it appears that John's epistles themselves were written to counter this, at least an early form of this, in the same region, along the coastal region of uh, what's today Turkey. Um, well... You know, and that possibly Ephesus. I mean, church tradition holds that the apostle John himself was spent out the rest of his days in Ephesus following the um, um, the sack of uh, Jerusalem in AD seventy. Um, Ignatius himself, as he writes to Ephesus, he he lambasts the uh, uh, the Dostus over and over and over again um, by 
asserting repeatedly um, the fact that Jesus truly suffered, that he truly was born. If you read the letters, he says it at least four or five different uh, times that to extent for one for one sentence, this is a quote from one of his letters that uh, for he, again, referring to Jesus, for Jesus suffered all these things for our sakes in order that we might be saved. And he truly suffered just as he truly raised himself, not as certain unbelievers say that he suffered in appearance only. It is they who exist in appearance only. Indeed, their fate will be determined by what they think. They will become disembodied and demonic. Um, he will say things like that every day. He goes, we have to assert. He, in fact, he tells some of the church leaders over and over again, assert Jesus was truly crucified, truly buried, and was truly raised under the reign of Pontius Pilate. Um, and so he wants to emphasize the historicity of Christianity. Uh, he really wants to emphasize the, the, the true nature that Jesus truly is the son of David, that he truly was born of a virgin. Virgin birth is important uh, to Ignatius. Um, and so... Uh, as he's, his martyrdom is facing him, he's, he's, coming square, uh, he, he's having to square himself with the nature of Christianity itself. He even says that he considers his martyrdom to be the beginning uh, uh, of him. To, uh, he says, it's the beginning of me being a disciple. Mm-hmm. He refers to his martyrdom as the, the pains of birth. Um, almost this idea that uh, he almost finds it necessary to be martyred, to be a believer. In fact, you actually see this by the mid third century, that some church fathers will actually make that statement, that if you're not martyred, you're not a Christian, which of course will create problems in the fourth century when Christianity is legalized. So then how can you prove that you're a Christian? You have to have a new alternative to show you're, that you really mean it. And that new alternative is going to be monasticism. Um, but Ignatius is martyred, so he, he writes against the Docetists. Um, well, one of my, actually, my favorite quote is um, uh, from it, from well, my, my favorite quote from Ignatius is when he writes to the Church of Philadelphia. And, um, this kind of s- summarized for him what the content of the gospel is. He says this, he goes, But the gospel possesses something distinctive, namely the coming of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, and the resurrection. For the beloved prophets preached in anticipation of him, but the, uh, but the gospel is the imperishable finished work. And for him, this is, this is a non-negotiable. Um, and this is what's wrong with the Judaizing tendencies of those who want to revert back to the Mosaic system. This is the problem with those who want to revert to some type of Gnostic dualism that says that Christ didn't truly suffer. He says, no, the Christ is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. It's the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This anticipates the, uh, um, the problems that the, the uh, Orthodox Christianity is going to have in the face of Marcionism, which is what we'll talk about in, in, in the next episode. These people who want to posit a distinction uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament, saying that Jesus tried to deliver us from, has come to deliver us from the Old Testament deity. And for, for Ignatius, there's clear continuity between Old Testament and New Testament, that the New Testament is the summation, is the completed work and action of what God has planned throughout history. And for him, that's what that, that stands in, in the, the front of his mind as he's on his way to be martyred in Rome. And that's evident in all, all seven of his letters. And isn't, isn't it well known that Ignatius martyred him? He is, he is the first one to coin the phrase, there can only be one. Or there can be only one, <laughs> thus making him the first Highlander. Uh, <laughs> p- pretty sure that's not true. <laughs> gave it a whirl. Yeah. yeah. Shepherd, <laughs> shepherd leader. Shepherd. <laughs> Charles, I had a question about kind of two things. First of all, I'm reading in, in terms of the uh, historical theology of Trinitarian dialogue, and I'm wondering what sort of issues they're facing 
in terms of Trinitarian discussion and mm-hmm. in the conversation uh, that was happening among apostolic fathers. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe it's not very developed at that time, but I, I suppose yeah, that's my first question. Yeah, uh, well, for Ignatius, it, uh, uh, first and foremost, what's at the the, the major the the central thrust of the debate is christological in nature it's um not necessarily the relationship of the father to the son that's not what's in the, the major focal point right now the focal point is whether or not jesus was truly human and truly god um and, and you see that with the competing uh, uh heretical versions of of ebionism which leads to adoptionism uh, among kind of uh like early jewish type like the jewish slash christian people want to try to maintain the distinction you know be both jewish and christian typically hold to like an what we call an adoptionist christology maintaining that um jesus was just human on the other hand you have kind of the um kind of these greek uh pagan type religions that want to affirm the deity of christ because they're all about the supernatural but they want to deny the humanity because of kind of the platonic influences so what's really central for ignatius at least is um, the Christological fact that Christ was truly God and truly human. Um, but the, the question of the relationship of the Father to the Son, um, I, I don't really think that becomes a big discussion until origin in the 250s. Um, and definitely by uh, 318 with Arius and Alexandria, that becomes the major debate in the early church, or, or in the, the, the church in the 4th century. Uh, in the 2nd century, to me, it seems to be a question of Christology. Mm-hmm. I, of course, they're 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 closely related. Yeah. Um, so maybe you have seeds of Trinitarian debates in the Christological debates yeah, in the I mean, second first century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you could probably um, very loosely define the, the the history of the early church in terms of Trinity and Christological debates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Van Til has this quote about how every heresy in the history of the church is a version of subordinationism, <laughs> or something like that. Okay. Um, but uh, my my second question, somewhat related to that, is. Uh, obviously, we see how they handle theological diversity mm-hmm. in so-called Christianity in dealing with heresies. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, evidence, sort of historical evidence, that evidences them dealing with inner Orthodox theological diversity among the Apostolic Fathers? I mean, obviously, the survived writings are they're polemic. Yeah, they're. I think the DDK would be uh, interesting to look at, uh, particularly in terms. Of, I mean. The, it's not going to be Trinitarian or Christological. Those are foundational, but actually in terms of baptism, um, they gave a formula for, for baptism, um, and he interesting, uh, basically says it doesn't matter the temperature of the water or the uh, – basically I think that the author of the DDK will say that you know, it should be running water, but if you can't do running water, that's fine. It should be hot, you know, it could be – it prefers to be a certain temp- – you know, uh, and so it, 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 it feels – it sounds like the way he's writing it since this is instructional that it's dealing with certain kind of issues – but those don't seem to be, you know, they, they might threaten to be divisive. I mean, um, again, if you read the, the Council of Nicaea, uh, kind of the canons from that, they'll deal with specific issues on whether or not you should use unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, and that threatened to actually uh, split the church um, in the third century. Um, I can't remember the name of the group that actually tries to break away. And which side is what you can, again, I, I highly suggest, uh, recommend uh, Henry Chadwick's book, The Early Church. For those of y'all, if y'all are interested in reading more on this stuff, it's kind of a little outdated, but just a great narrative. Um, yeah, as we uh, close, um, I think, Kyle, you have a, a quote from Ignatius, right? Yes. Is it one of his letters to uh, one of the churches? Yes. <laughs> no, there's, uh, in, in light of kind of the conversation about um, Ignatius's emphasis on the nature of, of Jesus being both um, 
human yet divine. Uh, he says in his letter to Ephesians, uh, there is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God and man, true life and death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering and then beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, I just think that's a very encouraging, almost pastoral yeah. way of thinking about the nature of uh, and, and person of, of Jesus. I think that's something that through the series of kind of bringing home church history to us as, yeah. as we engage with kind of these uh, with apostolic fathers and things like that, that there are some treasures, so yeah. to speak, that we can grasp hold of. So. Yeah, no, and, and that's a really great point. Remember when he writes these letters, he's not writing, it's not like, oh, let me sit down, I'm about to be martyred, let me write a systematic theology textbook. Mm-hmm. I'm writing letters to strengthen the churches in the midst of persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times you get, especially in these, it's Christmas time, or it's about to be Christmas time, so there's all these documentaries that talk about like the early church and talk about multiple Christianities and the, the Orthodox faith as we have it today being kind of like these proto-imperialists who want to stamp out diversity in the early church. Um uh, over against like the flourishing Christianities of docetism and things like that. And I think that's just kind of, kind of hot. This all, it's not just kind of all out hogwash. I mean, you read Ignatius, he's fully convinced that Christ is fully God, fully man, and he's willing to die for it. He's not the one oppressing others. He's the one basically begging to be martyred. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. Charles, tell us about what we're going to look forward to. Uh, we're going to look forward to more church history. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I believe. I, I, if, when does history end? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think we're uh, next time looking at uh, Marcionism. Oh, it might be just, well, it's tied. Justin Martyr will, will refute it, but I think we're going to have a couple different episodes. One on Marcionism, then one on Justin Martyrs. He's dealing with he deals with three or four major issues as well. So okay, great. Well, um, a- anything to say in closing? Nope. <laughs> that sounds like Charles. <laughs> there can be only one. I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And this is Faith of Our Fathers. Thanks for listening. Yep. <laughs>